All right, and if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Judges chapter 13, and you don't have to stand because um, as I've been kind of doing on Wednesdays, we're going to read several verses and we're going to kind of walk through them together and talk about them. But I, I'll tell you, God has, sometimes when you're, when you're going to preach a message, you're a little unsure when you're, when you're writing it all down. You're like, okay, God, is this really what you want me to say? And, and then God give you these little confirmations along the way. And you're like, okay, this is really what you want me to say. So I, I do come to you with a, a lot of confirmation tonight, including one that happened right before I came up here um, just a little while ago that I'll share with you at the end. But we're going to read in Judges 13. And to give you a little bit of background here, we already talked about the other week, Judges 1 and 2, about how that this was a generation after Joshua who continually forgot and did not the things of God and just kept waxing worse and worse. So God raised up judges so that they could deliver the, the Jews, deliver the house of Israel um, in the time of their wickedness. But as soon as a judge would die, they would fall right back into their wickedness. And as you, there's a link that's going to be on the video. So later, if you want to go check out the video later, there's going to be a link at the bottom that will walk you through each of the judges in sequential order and kind of tell you a little bit about them. But just the most brief overview is this. They started out pretty good with Deborah being the only female judge who was also one of the best judges. But then they progressively got worse and worse as time went on. And then we get all the way down to the very last judge, which is the one we're going to talk about tonight, which is Samson. Now, most of us, when you hear the story of Samson in Sunday school, you hear the story of the strong man who defeated all of the Philistines and the strong man who, who did all of these things. But Samson was actually a very bad judge in a lot of ways. And we'll kind of get into that tonight. So let's, let's look at verse 1 of uh, Judges 13. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man named, a man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren, and bare not. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman, and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive, and bear a son." Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing, for lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come on his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Verse 6, Then the woman came and told, the husband, told her husband, saying, A man of God came unto me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told me he, he me his name. But he said unto me, Behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing, for, thou, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us, and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born." So it, there's, it's kind of interesting to me how many stories of barren women there are within Scripture. And God intervenes and creates a miracle out of the situation. And there, we could preach an entire message on out of how our own barrenness, God can perform a miracle. When, when we don't think there's any way, that there's no, everything stacked against us, and God is able to make a miracle out of that particular situation. But in this case, this, this woman really is barren. She cannot have children. This angel appears to her and, her and her husband, as I'm sure I probably would too, is like, okay, well, let me talk to this guy too. He, he prays, God, let, let me talk to this gentleman so that I can hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. 
and, and know what it is that, that he said. So God obliges him and, and sends the angel back. He sends the angel back to Manoah, but at this point, Manoah still did not know that the man was an angel. He thought he was just a man. But here we pick up in verse 21, and it will be revealed to Manoah that it, wasn't actually, that it was actually an angel. It says, but the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife. Just means he disappeared. Okay, he was talking to this angel, and the angel disappeared. Then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. Verse 22, and Manoah said unto his wife, we shall surely die. Because we have seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would at this time have told us such things as these. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. Now let me pause right here for just a moment. The husband hears the story from his wife. The wife says, hey, listen, this, this man came who kind of looked like an angel. He came and he talked to me and he told me a miracle was going to happen and, and that we were going to be able to conceive a child even though it seemed impossible. Manoah was a little unsure. So he says, okay, God, let, let, this angel, or let this man come speak to me. The man does. And not only does the man come and speak to him and tell him all the things, but then it's revealed to Manoah that this was, in fact, an angel of the Lord. But Manoah's immediate response was to say, well, now we're going to die because we saw God. Despite the fact that they had just been given a promise from God. Tonight, my title is simply this. In the darkness, I have seen a great light. In the darkness, I have seen a great light. Because what happened here is what's going to kind of set the stage for the rest of this message. What Manoah saw with his physical eyes completely blinded him to what was going on spiritually. What he saw with his physical perception skewed the fact that he had just received a promise from God himself. How many of us have been in that same boat where we know God has given us a word, we know God has given, a, given us a promise, and yet we see our circumstances, we look at the things around us, and that overtakes our spiritual sight. It overtakes the promises that we've been told, and all we can believe is what we physically see in front of us. After seeing the angel disappear, Manoah was so fixated on what he saw that he forgot what he had heard. So Manoah's wife had to gently remind him, hey, why would God give us a promise and then kill us? That doesn't make any sense. I, never mind, I'll, I'll leave that alone. I was going to make a, a funny joke about wives and husbands, but I'll, 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 let it, I'll let it slide for right now. All right. Church, I do want to encourage you that if God has given you a promise, it will come to pass. It will come to pass. In your flesh you may only see death and destruction, but I encourage you to open your spiritual eyes and see what God is doing right before you. Now in Judges 14, we see the birth and kind of the growth of Samson. Um, some instructions given not to cut his hair, those kind of things. Uh, he is to be a mighty warrior of the Lord, a deliverer for Israel. But the story of Samson is a little more complicated than that. You see, just like any other uh, person in this room, Samson was a human and he was severely flawed. In chapter 14, Samson chooses a wife from the city of Timnath, which was a Philistine city. His first wife that he chooses is a Philistine. Now, why is this important? His parents were angry, especially his mother. Why would she be angry? Well, you see, the Philistines 
were enslaving the Jews. They were, they were over-oppressing the Jews at this point. So imagine you're being oppressed by a people, and your child decides, you know what, I'm going to go and marry one of, one of our oppressors. That, that would seem like a little bit of a slap in the face. So, so his mother and his father was a little, a little bit irate with him. But the problem was is that Samson thought that nothing could touch him. Samson thought he was so smart and so strong and so wise, it wasn't a problem for him to go and marry a Philistine woman. Now, I'm not going to read through chapter 14 for the sake of time. I have a lot of verses I'd like to go through, but read through chapter 14 on your own. But let me give you the, the Cliff Notes version. It's simply this. A situation arises. She kind of betrays his trust. Samson gets mad at her and leaves his wife back with her parents and walks away. And now we pick up in chapter 15, kind of knowing what happened there. So verse 1 of chapter 15 says, But it came to pass within a while after, in the time of wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid. And he said, I will go into my wife into the chamber. Now keep in mind, he had left his wife with her parents, didn't say what was going to happen, didn't say he was coming back for her, for all they knew that he was done with her. So he leaves her there. He comes back now after an undisclosed amount of time and decides that he's going to go in to see her. Verse 2 says, And her father said, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her. Therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. And Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and took firebrands, and turned tail to tail, and put a firebrand in the midst between the two tails. And when he had set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines, and burn up both of the shocks, and also the standing corn, and with the, or with the vineyards and the olives. Then the Philistines said, Who hath done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion." And the Philistines came up and burnt her and her father with fire. I'm going to tell you, if you want a graphic depiction of violence, read the book of Judges. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the book of Judges. So imagine this. Samson and his wife have a fight. Samson decides, okay, wife, I'm going to put you away for a while. And he sends her back with, with her parents. Doesn't tell her that he's coming back. Doesn't tell her anything, at least not that we can read within Scripture comes back and decides, okay, now I'm ready to come back and see my wife. The wife's dad's like, hey, dude, we didn't know where you were, if you were coming back, so I gave her to your friend, right? So in his anger, he takes all these foxes, puts a firebrand on their tail, and lets them loose, and they run through the fields and catch all these fields on fire. So the Philistines, of course, are now angry with Samson because he just destroyed a bunch of their crops. And this is where we find in verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. Because the Philistines decided the way they would get their revenge on Samson was to go and murder his wife and her father. So Samson gets angry in verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. And after that I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock Edom. Verse 9, then the Philistines went up and pitched in Judah and spread themselves in Lehi. So as you read on in the next couple of verses, what you would find is simply this. The Philistines now, after being defeated by uh, Samson, 
decide, okay, we're going to get a whole bunch of men together, and we're going to come, and we're going to take Samson. So they show up, and at the tribe of Judah, the, the, the people of Judah are like, whoa, what, what's going on here? Why are all these guys gathered together to come against us? So they tell them, they say, listen, give us Samson, and we'll leave you alone. So the men of Judah say, okay. They are willing at this point, they are so afraid of the Philistines, they're willing to turn over their judge, the one who's supposed to be their avenger, the one who's supposed to protect them. They're willing to turn him over. So they agree, and they come to Samson, and they say, Samson, we, we got to turn you over. And Samson says, okay, but make me a promise that when you turn me over, you will not kill me yourselves. Simply, you will bind me up and deliver me to them. So this is where we pick back up. Verse 13. And they spake unto him, saying, No, but we will bind thee fast and deliver thee into their hands. But surely we will not kill thee. And they bound him with two new cords and brought him up from the rock. And when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire. And his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it. And slew a thousand men therewith. And Samson said, with the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called the place Ramath, Ramath Lehi. Go down to verse 20. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Finally, we see Samson doing what he was called to do, judge Israel and defeat the Philistines. Now, I should put a little side note in here. This term judge has a couple different meanings. And kind of depending on how you read the book of Judges will kind of determine what you think of the word judge. A judge can be like we think of, like a courtroom judge who stands and judges matters. But the word judge is also used as a governor. So in this particular instance, one who governs on behalf of the people, who is appointed to fight for them. So a judge here may or may not have been one to solve issues, but yet every story we read of the judges was them essentially fighting battles on behalf of Israel against the Jews, or against the Philistines, against their enemies. Now we find Samson, after his mistakes with, with the, uh, the Timnite woman and these different things, we see a pattern emerging where, yes, he is successful in fighting the enemy, but, man, is he hot-headed. He is rash and makes quick decisions without thinking, and it always comes back to bite him. It always gets him in more trouble. So now we, we go to Judges chapter 16. In Judges chapter 16, we're going to see where it really starts to unfold for, for Samson, where his ego starts to get the best of him. In verse 1 of Judges 16, it says, Then went Samson, then went Samson to Gaza, and saw there an harlot, and went in unto her. Jump down to verse 4. And it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the, the lords of the Philistines came up unto her, and said unto her, Entice him, and see wherein his great strength lieth, and by what means we may prevail against him that we may bind him to afflict him, and we will give thee every one of us eleven hundred pieces of silver. And Delilah said to Samson, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein thy great strength lieth, and wherein thou mightest be bound to afflict thee. See, Samson had spent his entire life always escaping his bad decisions by pure strength. 
He has developed this attitude of I'm not afraid of anything because I'm stronger, I'm smarter, I'm wiser than everyone around me. Some people say that Samson had a problem with women, which may be partially true. But Samson's true problem was a heart problem. Samson's true problem was always thinking that it was his way that was going to deliver him. It's very interesting when you read in the, in the account of Deborah, for example, you will see mention of her praising the Lord, giving God glory for the, the, the victory in the battles. And yet when you read through the story of Samson, you almost never see an account where Samson worshipped God. Or you never see an account where Samson gave God the credit for his strength or for his wisdom or for their victory. Samson had a heart problem. And yet here again is Samson putting himself in a situation, thinking that his own wisdom and strength will be able to keep him from any potential harm. Samson has spent his whole life this way. And somewhere along the way, it seems that he had forgotten that his strength was given by God and to be used for God. Samson was now in a dangerous place because he was no longer dependent on God, but rather sought pleasure as the chief thing. After all his success, he thought he saw all that he needed to see. But all his wisdom and all his strength were for naught because of his decision to lie in the bed of his enemy. Church, we have to be very careful in the decisions that we make. Very rarely is it one day we just decide that we are going to go and do this horribly sinful thing. It usually starts with an attitude, with a thought, with a belief, with a perception that I no longer need God to fight my battles for me. I no longer need God to provide for me. I've got a good job now. I make lots of money now. I'm popular now. Everyone likes me, so I guess I've got this thing all figured out. And that little attitude problem begins to swell within us and we begin to make more and more decisions contrary to what we know we're supposed to do until we find ourselves lying in the very bed of the enemy. Now, most know the story of Delilah. He tells Delilah a lie. So the first time Delilah asks him, tell us the, the source of your strength, that Samson's smart enough to say, I'm not going to really tell her the source of my strength. And he tells her a lie. And then just so coincidentally, that very night that he tells her a lie of where his strength comes from, the enemy busts through the doors trying that tactic on him. You would think that this would be enough for Samson to realize, man, maybe I shouldn't hang around this woman, right? I mean, she's the only one I told this lie to, and here's the enemy trying this tactic to, to take all my strength away from me. That should be it. He should realize, whew, get away from her, but no. His arrogance was so enrooted, ingrained in him at this point, not a big deal. So she asks him again. He tells her another lie. And immediately that same night, he falls asleep and in comes the enemy and tries that tactic. Surely by now, Samson's got it figured out that this woman is bad news. But he's become so accustomed to riding the fence, so accustomed to doing it his own way, he, he stays. And finally, the third time, we find ourselves at verse 18. And when, Del when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he has showed me all his heart. 
Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand, and she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of the sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist, this word wist means he, he didn't even know. He did not even know that the Lord was departed from him. What a scary place to be. To flirt with the world for so long that you do not even recognize that God's presence has left you. To become so comfortable trusting in yourself that you no, no longer even realize that God's presence is not beside you. For a person who was so wise, who was so strong, he was completely blind to the reality of the situation. Verse 21, But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house, Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistine gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered him, or delivered into our hands our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. And now our hero Samson the promised child of his parents, the judge of Israel, the strongest man of Scripture, is blind and in chains. By all onlookers, it appears that the promise is doomed to die. But something amazing happens after Samson is blinded. For the first time in probably many, many years, Samson could actually see. Spiritually, that is. Samson had in clear view his purpose. In his darkness, there was a bright, shining light. I know this message up until this point has probably seemed like one of uh, maybe conviction, maybe condemnation, maybe this, this warning of flirting with the world. And, and it is true, we, we can't flirt with the world and we can't become comfortable with the world. But this message actually, believe it or not, is intended to be a message of hope. Because up until this point, Samson had made some terrible life decisions. And it had put him in a position where he was now in chains, captured by the enemy, and been blinded. He was being made a mockery of. The world was laughing at him because it knew they had him right where they wanted him. But you see, oftentimes it is in our darkest moments when we can no longer see physically, when we can no longer see the way out, is when we finally are in a position to allow God to do what he needs to do within us. Verse 25 says, And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house. And he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women. And all the lords of the Philistine were there, and there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me. Probably one of the first times in Samson's life for many, many years that he actually prayed that prayer, where he actually earnestly with his heart 
Say, God, I recognize that it is you who gives me the strength. It is you who are my source of strength. And he cries out with his whole heart and says, God, remember me. I pray thee and strengthen me. I pray thee only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Verse 29, And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood and on which it was borne up of the one his right hand and of the other his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. And in this one act of obedience, Samson dealt more damage to the Philistines than he did during his entire life, depending on himself. When I read this last line, I couldn't help but think of the story of Jonah. We know next to nothing of Jonah's life prior to that fateful calling of him to go to Nineveh. We know he was a prophet, but we don't see anything about the things that he did prior to this. We don't know hardly anything about what it was that he, maybe he was popular, maybe he wasn't. We don't know anything about him. We know that he was a prophet, but don't read of any of his exploits prior to getting called to Nineveh. And when he is finally called to Nineveh, Jonah becomes furious and tries to run the exact opposite direction. Jonah thought God was the one who was blind. Thought God clearly did not know how bad Nineveh truly was, how they were not deserving of a second chance. Eventually we find as the story progresses, Jonah gets thrown overboard and ends up in the belly of a whale. Listen to what Jonah chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 says. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice, and thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about. Even to the soul and the depth closed me round about, and the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars were about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. It was only when Jonah was physically unable to see, when he was in his darkest moment, and it looked like all was lost, is when his spiritual eyes were finally open. And in that moment, God restored the promise to Jonah. And because of that, an entire city turned their heart toward God. It took Saul of Tarsus, literally being blinded by a great light, for him to recognize spiritually what it was he was actually called to do. Church, these past two years have been the darkest of times for many of us. For a lot of different reasons. Many in this room have lost not just one, but multiple family members. And not just to COVID, but to life in general. In my family alone, my mom died in February. And in the past four months, five months, I've lost two of my uncles as well. Many others in this room have similar stories of losing friends and, and loved ones in this season. Losing jobs. Having all sorts of different issues. And it seems like this is our darkest of times. But I want you to know that in our moment of darkness, there is a great light. 
It is in these times that we must open our spiritual eyes to see what it is that God is actually trying to do. You see, it's only when we get to a place within ourselves that we realize we cannot do it on our own. Can we truly trust God with all our heart? I think about the story of Jonah literally being in a place where he could physically do nothing. He could not escape out of the belly of the well himself. Even if he could get out of the, the mouth of the well, he was at the bottom of the ocean. He still would have died. There was nothing he could have done. But that's when he realized that there was always nothing he could do on his own. That it was always God who was the provider, the source of his life. And his purpose was restored. I want to close with just giving you two points. Number one, don't allow what you perceive with your physical senses to hinder what God is trying to do in the spirit. And this can be both good and bad. Don't allow your perceived success in this world to mute the voice of God telling you to do something else. Don't allow your perceived status within life to prevent you from seeing that this is not your purpose. That your purpose is to serve God and everything else is secondary. But at the same time, don't let the fear that you have of all the stuff going on define you either. Because while you may be in darkness, God is not. God is light and therefore he can never be in darkness. In your moment of darkness, you must remember that God always has your back. If God has given you a promise, you must know, as I said earlier, it will come to pass. God is not a man that he should lie. If he said it will come to pass, you need to hold on and get ready. Because it will happen. Number two, you are not defined by the darkness. You are defined by your response to the darkness. I want to share with you a personal story, one that has been a kind of a personal journey of mine for a while now, for probably many years, but really over these past, this past year, I feel like has kind of God's been working this issue within my heart. You see, sometimes our darkness is brought on by our own choices. Sometimes there are things outside of our control that makes us feel like we're in a dark place. But many times our darkness is brought on by our own actions. Our own choices put us in a position where we feel hopeless and helpless. But God is telling us that we are not defined by that darkness, but only how we then choose to respond to that darkness. Many of you have heard my testimony of, of, of dealing with PTSD and all of those things, but even before PTSD, I've shared the testimony of my father. My dad left when I was a small child, when I was, when I was a baby actually. I only saw my dad twice ever in my life before he died. I saw him once. He showed up at a church service. Um, I was about to go out, ironically enough, playing blind Bartimaeus. And right before I walked out, someone said, hey, you see that man sitting over there? I was like, yeah, that's your dad. Wow. Kind of hard to focus on what I was trying to do when this is my first time ever seeing the man who was my dad. I hated my dad because I didn't know him. All I knew was what I had been told by, by my mom and by these other stories. And, and I had this perception of my dad because of all his poor choices in life with alcohol and all of these different things. 
Then in 2004, I was in Afghanistan, and I got a Red Cross message saying that my dad had neck and throat cancer and that he was going to pass away soon. I had to make a decision. Do I take time to go home, spending what was essentially my two weeks time off from a war, to see a man that I really didn't know? But God and my fiancé at the time, now wife, told me I, I should do it because I'll never have the chance again. I'm glad I listened. I went home. I saw him. I really couldn't understand what he was saying because his neck and throat cancer had progressed to a place where I couldn't understand the words coming out of his mouth. I couldn't understand what he was trying to say to me. His wife at the time was kind of interpreting because she had been with him throughout the process, so she still kind of understood. He told me he loved me. I couldn't say it back because I still felt, I don't know this man. How can I say I love you to someone I don't know? For many years, when I thought back of my father, I thought of all his failures and all of his shortcomings. Then as time went on, I remembered hearing that toward the end of his life, in his last couple years, that he had gotten back in church. That he had committed his life back to God, that he had prayed back through the Holy Ghost, that he was an active member within the church, that he was, he was involved within church. And God began to convict me and tell me, Jeremy, you don't want me to define you by your choices. You don't want me to look at you as the man who, who made these bad choices when you were in your darkest place. And yet that is what you're doing to your father. You are viewing your father in light of his past and not in light of his repentant state before he died. And God's like, I see him as the man who turned his life around. I see him as the man who in his final days gave his life to me. Let me tell you, it's a hard thing. It's not something that just one night, but okay, God, I just forgive him and, and everything's hunky-dory and there's nothing to worry about anymore. It's been a process. So I have this Bible with my dad's name on the front of it. I've had it for several years now, and it's mostly sat in a box in a closet for a long time. Then over the past year, I pulled this, this Bible out, and it's been sitting in my office on my bookshelf. And I've been leaving it there as kind of a reminder a reminder that, that God doesn't see him the way that I saw him. And I have to see him the way that God sees him. Inside the Bible is a picture. Donnie, if you could throw up that picture. And the, inside the Bible is a picture and a church bulletin. And again, I, I never knew my father, so I really this... In many ways, this man looks foreign to me. But I've looked at this picture many times and said, at some point in his life, he's made some right choices and he's made some wrong choices. But ultimately what matters is, in the end, he chose God. This church bulletin has sat in this Bible for I don't even know how many years. I feel like I've looked at it before. I feel like I've opened it up and looked at the inside. Tonight, as I was reviewing my notes... I decided one more time, let me just look in here and see why am I keeping this church bulletin? What is, why, why, I mean, this has been in here this whole time and I've just never thought to throw it out. So I looked on the inside and there was nothing significant on the inside of this. His name's not in here. There's no mention of him. I see his wife's name is mentioned here as a thank you to helping set up some, some fall festival, but, but that was it. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll just throw this away. 
Then I happen to look on the back, and there's a handwritten note a couple months before his death. I'm going to try to read this. The spirit of truth open a word unto you this day, letting go of the things in the past, and your hand is reaching out for great things right in front of you. And then he references Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, and he kind of paraphrases here. He says, Do not remember the things of old, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing now. It shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Here lies the way. I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I think sometimes the, the trick of the enemy is that when we're in our moments of darkness, that we feel so defeated that we have this temptation to give up, to quit. But what I want you to know tonight is that God is that great light in the darkness. And that he wants you to be defined by his great light and not by your mistakes not by the things that have happened to you, that have been done to you, that you've done yourself. That's not how God defines you. So as we all stand, Sister Powell, would you mind just playing something softly on the piano? It doesn't, doesn't matter, whatever you want to play. I debated on whether or not I was going to do any kind of altar call. I thought I was just going to teach on Samson and let it lie at that. But I feel that it would be appropriate for us to take a moment of self-reflection to recall within ourselves the promises that God has given us and to know that God has not stopped giving you that promise. He has not, had, has not quit and given up on you because you were in a moment of darkness, because you've had moments of fear and doubt and, and unbelief, because you've had moments of mistakes. God's promise is still there. And He still wants you to fulfill that promise within your life. He is simply asking, stop letting your mistakes and your hurts define you and let his righteousness be what defines you. So I want to open this altar and if you don't want to pray at the altar, fine, pray at your chair. But let's just find just, just a few moments and pray and ask God to show us that light in our darkness to be defined by him and not by our mistakes.